welcome to Crazy Making. I'm Simon Adam, host of Crazy Making. Today's episode marks the third episode of a series on child and youth mental health. I speak with Dr. Nazila Kandu. Nazila is an associate professor in the School of Nursing and Women's Health Research Chair in Mental Health at York University. In my conversation with her, Dr. Kanlu helps us understand some of the most pressing issues facing young people today, particularly people with intersecting marginalized identities such as disability and racialization, for example. She talks to us about resilience, but not the individualized way we understand it, but rather a more complex notion of the concept, drawing attention to the structural dimensions of resilience and coping. Hello, Nazila. Thank you for appearing on the show um, and welcome to Crazy Making. Thank you, Simon, for having me and on uh, such a significant week. It's the National Mental Health Week. It's my pleasure to be here. Indeed, it's a timely interview, isn't it? Um, Nazila, uh, I, uh, I want you to start by telling us a little bit about what you're up to in your academic endeavors. What, what, what sort of research are you doing right now? Great, thank you. One of the projects that we're doing right now, and you'll see I usually use the term we because I really believe in a team approach towards many things, including research. And I have the honor of working with some uh, great research staff and students at my office. Uh, the office, of course, is virtual these days because of the pandemic, but uh, it is a vibrant center and um, Hopefully when the pandemic's over, you will revisit us again. So one of the projects that we're working on in relation to youth is a SHRC funded, that Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council project that looks at um, arts-based approaches towards uh, examining youth identity. And we're particularly interested in Asian Canadian youth identity. Um, I talk a lot about identity. I think it's an important aspect of our mental health. And this is an area of research that goes back to uh, my uh, PhD. But in this particular project, we are looking at uh, individual and group-based arts methodologies to examine uh, Asian uh, Canadian youth identities through an intersectional lens. So what do I mean by individual? Um, Often the way we ask folks about how they feel about themselves, about their self-concept, about their identity, self-esteem, resilience, is through narrative forms. And in this project, we're looking at other forms as well. Through, uh, for example, self-portraits and relational maps, youth participants draw about the significance and uh, attributes of their relationship with significant others in their spheres. And we also have group-based approaches. Um, and in this particular case, we're using Regis Theatre, where the groups work together um, in writing scripts uh, in relation to their identities. And once they write the scripts, they, uh, they um, you know, read off their scripts, they, they, they share with others through Regis Theatre. So that's one of the projects that's ongoing. Right. Um, and 
Nizala, what brought you into this work to begin with? You know, I reflect on this a lot. Uh, my background is uh, psychiatric nursing, so I worked as a psychiatric nurse in acute psychiatry um, soon after I graduated from my undergraduate uh, nursing program. And um, I, I always, uh, as a student, I always uh, really wanted to get into two fields, either maternal child health or psychiatric health. And at that point, the uh, psychiatric unit held full-time positions. So I took that and I haven't looked back since. Uh, the mental health field is, is an amazing field. Uh, as as uh, Simon, you yourself know, there's a lot for us to learn about and a lot to do to make things better for all. And so um, after that, uh, even though I started off as a psych nurse, over time, my view, my lens has changed into more community-based view or lens on mental health and well-being. So through further degrees and uh, through um, uh, a degree in community health, and then my PhD that looked at a community sample of youth, uh, a large sample of youth in terms of their identity and self-esteem. But significantly, um, when I was doing my a PhD, as a PhD student, I received a, a small amount of funding to conduct um, research with uh, youth in the community applying a participatory reaction research lens and through that small project i really it really opened up my eyes towards participatory and inclusive forms of research and so there began uh, a journey of using various methods whether quantitative my phd was quantitative but this smaller study was qualitative using different methodologies using different ways of looking at the same thing to understand the whole field of mental health better. So I find this dynamic continues to this day. Um, I don't draw from one discipline or one body of theory to look at mental health and well-being, whether it's the mental health and well-being of youth, women, immigrant families. I find I'm always drawing from different disciplines, if you will, from health sciences, but also social sciences, humanities, to, um, to reflect and to understand what's going on. And, um, you know, that's, that's why I, to me, it's a lifelong journey of learning for myself as well, but also being a bit on the edge of uh, different disciplines, how do we bring them together? And over time, um, I, I found one of the ways that helps me organize <laughs> the various book ways uh, of looking at phenomena is organizing it first through, if you will, a systems perspective, looking at what's going on at the individual micro level, looking at what's going on at the family meso level, if you will, but then also importantly, what's going on in our larger communities and society at large. So I found that way of thinking initially helps me organize and understand what's going on in terms of the mental health uh, aspects of any particular youth that uh, I'm doing research with. But also more recently, I would say, well, not, not that recently, but 
later my own development as a researcher, um, I, I'm influenced by intersectionality lens, if you will. Now, um, I was kind of thinking about intersections before I began reading a lot on intersectionality. So to me, the notion of uh, when it comes to mental health, understanding how the individual is experiencing, for example, sadness, sorrow, grief, or joy, um, resilience, um, connections to others, to me, it, it's experienced uh, as an individual subjective experience, but it's very much contextualized too. So it's contextualized in terms of what's going on in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our society, and I think the current pandemic has really reinforced what's going on in, in, the, in the larger sphere of the world uh, impacts us. So I, I always thought of the notion of intersections being particularly helpful when I looked at phenomena, the micro and the macro, if you will. But it was a bit later on that I came to learn more about uh, intersectionality theory and uh, apply it often uh, to the various projects that uh, we're doing. And Azela, you do um, use this idea of intersectionality often. And for our listeners who are not familiar with the concept of intersectionality, could you please uh, explain what an intersectional approach is? Absolutely. Um, so I'll explain it to you in a way that uh, I, I teach it to my students. Intersectionality theory uh, uh, emerges from a black feminist uh, writers, advocates uh, in the United States. Um, uh, of course, Professor Crenshaw is, is very well known uh, for her seminal work in this area. And there are other black feminist authors who contributed to the field. And it is a rich body of theorizing, analyzing, and linking to advocacy. The way um, I uh, teach it to my students who may be new to it is, I say, think of uh, three uh, concepts, if you will, when you're thinking about intersectionality. The notion of identity matters in intersectionality. So our, and there's no one identity. We have multiple identities. The notion of context matters because within each context, our various identities are more salient or less salient than others. So, okay, that's not new. I mean, psychology has been talking about that as have other fields. But what's significant is, is that, that intersectionality helps us to recognize is the notion of power. We don't have the same power 24 hours a day, nor do we have the same power as uh, our neighbors, uh, various groups we're part of. The combination of particular power or powerlessness within the context impacts the way our identities uh, are played out in terms of connections with others. And what's also important is an intersectionality lens helps us be dynamic in our thinking in that we're not inherently powerful or powerless. There's some context throughout the day where we may feel we have more power 
and uh, perhaps many others where we feel we have less or no power. Interesting. Thank you, Nazila, for that uh, very accessible yet complex um, explanation of intersectionality theory. I like how you describe your interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary work as on the edge of different disciplines. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I like that. Thank you. You did mention the pandemic, Nazila, and we, you know, we can't really get away without talking about the pandemic in many contexts. It's uh, really its own confounding universe these days. So year 2020, the year of the pandemic, how will it impact identities of children and youth over time in your experience? Right. That's something I've been thinking about. And uh, if I may, just a bit of a, uh, a background towards um, uh, my uh, writing in the pandemic. Very early on the pandemic, uh, folks were talking about the impact of the social isolation, uh, just the directives, the public health directives that we were under. And so it was obvious that this new norm was going to affect all of us. And earlier on in the pandemic, I wrote a short piece in terms of um, uh, the impacts of the pandemic on our mental health and well-being and how we um, rapidly need the public mental health system in Canada. So I think what the pandemic did is it um, uh, kind of made us relearn the importance of a public health system. And since then, we have public health leaders, researchers, practitioners, almost well, every day on the news. Um, but we really don't have a public mental health system in Canada. And I can elaborate that if you'd like, Simon. Uh, by that, I mean, even though we have mental health care institutes, these are mostly directed at the tertiary or critical end of um, mental illness. We don't have a lot in between in terms of prevention uh, before we get the need for critical mental health care. And uh, in terms of promotion, um, certainly our mental health well-being is not limited to a mental health system, but um, we need more work in terms of normalizing discourse around mental health and well-being uh, across different venues. I know schools in recent years have taken steps of talking about the importance of mental health and well-being. And I know um, more recently, as have universities for their students. But we do lack, um, if you will, a, a public mental health system that is accessible to all across Canada, regardless of where they live. So often as it is in healthcare, um, most of the uh, tertiary and larger institutes are within the downtown areas of larger cities. There's less or none in, um, uh, in places that are away from downtown and very limited amount, if any, in rural areas. It's a shame because if we invest uh, somewhat in prevention, 
then perhaps similar to other uh, aspects of health, we wouldn't need the tertiary end of care. And the thing with mental health illnesses, um, often it's recurrent. So unless there's significant support, once folks are discharged with the system, they become a part of the system for years, the, the returning door syndrome, if you will. Uh, and so early on, I talked about the importance of, uh, uh, of a public mental health system, if you will, in Canada. We still don't have that. Shortly after, uh, a colleague and I wrote about how it's impacting nursing. And uh, then I was the uh, guest editor for uh, an issue that looked at the impact of the pandemic on frontline workers. And we had submissions from uh, different disciplines, often healthcare, and from different parts of the world. But as 2020 was coming to an end, and I was guest editing uh, for a journal that had uh, an issue for some time, even before the pandemic, submissions to uh, looking at identity and youth, I kind of uh, remembered what was going on when the year, year two, 2000 was on its way and how we were all uh, anticipating what the K2 bug was going to do in terms of the next day when the year arrived. And I reflected how the impact of that was so much less than what the uh, COVID-19 um, bug did 20 years later. And so when um, thinking about it now, a year down the road, five years, 10 years down the road, we will have to listen to the narratives of kids who were kids during this narrative, of uh, children, of teens, of young adults, and how their suddenly changing world impacted who they thought they are as uh, as children, as teens, as adults. Um, and we, sh we should probably avoid making assumptions until we listen to um, what, uh, what the children and youth have to say. I think we can, as adults, bring our own lens, assuming um, the pandemic has affected them one way or another. But I think going back and uh, interviewing directly and having the children or the youth or adults at that point to talk about their experience in the pandemic is going to be important. And Zilla, I think you might have already answered my next question, but I think I'm going to ask it anyway. I normally ask all my guests to think about something, a critique that they might have of the current psychiatric system or in other words, sometimes I ask, if you have a bone to pick with psychiatry, what might it be? But really, I think for you, I'm curious, um, if I were to ask you, what would be um, a current failure or a shortcoming of the contemporary mental health psychiatric system? And it sounds like you're, you're, you're putting forward this structural intervention called the public mental health system or this idea of the public mental health system. It sounds like that is a sort of something that you're putting forward to fill this gap. Am I right on that? Um, you are, and I would add to that, that um, and what's, what's missing, unfortunately, from 
the mental health care end of it. And I think that's why your podcast is so important. You're bringing up a particular lens. Is um, folks who are receiving uh, mental health care um, are among the most um, marginalized, if you will, because it's not just a health care issue. There can also be legal issues. And um, often have had very little input, they or their families have had very little input in terms of how our mental health care is set up. There's such a separation in my mind of uh, the, the spheres of um, mental health care providers, mental health institutes, institutions, families with loved ones who have uh, mental health care needs, persons who have mental health care needs or mental health issues. And I think there's just such a disconnect and therefore the multiple groups uh, advocating for various components, all with good intentions. But uh, as, uh, as you know, Simon, there are multiple groups in this area. Uh, and I think probably the best approach would be going back to persons with lived experience, going back to their families. And by the way, the families may have different perspectives than their loved ones with lived experience and creating programs uh, that are that begin with what uh, folks with lived experience, their families have to say. For example, in the area of youth and mental health care, um, families can be really desperate to find help for their um, children with significant mental health or addictions issues, yet the waiting lists are, are are large or are long and significant. So I, I think starting with the lived experience and, and building a, a system around that and recognizing that depending on the mental uh, illness issue or healthcare need issue, it's going to be an investment for, uh, for a long period of time. But again, bringing that the different disciplinary lens. So it's not just a psychiatric lens, uh, it might also be uh, vocation, like how do we develop skills, educational skills, working skills for folks when they're in the community? How do we, with, with, with uh, participation of folks with lived experience, look at ma uh, making housing accessible, um, reaching out to others accessible? So I think starting with the lived experience building and around their families and the building a system around that and having the different folks talk to each other rather than in silos probably in my mind would lead to a more effective um, system. Now going back to an early point I was making, in my mind the most efficient system would be if we have if we give as much attention to prevention um, and again, create a more public uh, sort of a system across all regions, not just big cities, downtown big cities, but across all regions, that probably is, will be a more cost efficient approach towards uh, providing um, mental health support. 
I think one of the problems is most of the focus right now is on the tertiary end and uh, certainly for uh, serious and significant mental addictions issues, we need those services and centers uh, and, and more resources, but we need some resources directed at the more community and preventative end too. Indeed, I, I really couldn't agree more um, on the prevention side of things and, and the um, central attention to be paid to lived experience and the survivor perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. You'll get an argument from me there for sure. Let's talk about resilience. Okay. Um, um, how, how do you theorize this concept and why do we need to talk about it in the context of youth mental health? Great, thank you for asking. Um, again, I always like to give a bit of a history, and if you don't mind, uh, uh, you know, history of my work. Right. Um, and if you don't mind, I, I will do that. Um, a number of years ago, um, my colleague and I, Dr. Tatanya Bank and I, um, put out a book through this, uh, the publishing section of the Center for Addiction and Mental Health on youth resilience and the um, the person who was helping us uh, Margaret Kitchell Canali really helped us uh, to write this uh, short book in a way that was accessible to um, different audiences so to youth to parents to educators and um, this was just before the the term resilience uh, saw revival um and we organized the book um actually through systems way of looking at child and youth resilience so earlier on we talked about the links between why resilience is important to our mental health and how mental health and resilience are interlinked then we talked about the individual attributes of children and youth with uh, what we call resilience. And that is a, a, a typically a psychological or a psychiatric approach. Then we moved on to a chapter that looked at family attributes. And um, one of the chapters that I worked uh, a lot on was one that looked at the social environmental aspects of resilience. So, what's going on in our communities? Um, how does gender affect? How does identity, migration, our social determinants of uh, affect it? And this book, even though it's been around a while, it continues to be of interest because I think we applied that systems lens, if you will. Both Dr. Barank and I get asked even now to present uh, different venues. Uh, I mean, I, I presented uh, internationally and nationally. I presented to students, to educators, to parents, to policy folks. And I think why it's of interest is it, it really draws from uh, that systems perspective, recognizing that resilience is not just the personality attributes, that it needs a lot of support from family, but also we talk about families having their own resilience level and that how all of this is influenced by good policies or lack thereof in our communities, in our society, 
influenced by media. So I think, to me, resilience is is all the interconnections between those systems. Often, when we hear the term resilience, unfortunately, folks still think of it as an individual attribute. For sure, I mean there are um, folks that we look at and we see, oh, that person's so resilient, and this person isn't. Uh, we can't take the individual component away from the term but what i'm saying here is that in, as an individual we're all embedded in different systems systems of families neighborhoods um society and look again just going back to the pandemic look at how uh, the current global pandemic is impacting uh, the resilience of different groups and groups who had um, uh, health disparities to begin with, who, who were marginalized before the pandemic, are more affected and, and, and more so marginalized because of the pandemic. So it's not that those groups aren't resilient uh, against the pandemic and what it's doing, but it, again, it's the, um, the social context, the social determinants of health, the health disparities that they were facing that's impacting them in the face of such a critical um, health risk, if you will, because of the pandemic. All right, like and really an, an individualized view of resilience is is just ex it's exhausting, it's exhausted. And in many ways it's been theorized as inherently oppressive. And this is just so refreshing to hear your approach, the social and the environmental aspects of resilience, a, a sort of, again, a structural analysis of this concept of resilience that's really necessary. Um, right, if I may add, Simon, a part of why the idea of resilience still continues to be thought of as um, individual, even though uh, in the literature on resilience is is uh, is not uh, is no longer just at the individual level is because the term initially came from looking at um, from psychology and psychiatry um, and it was more individual based originally even though the literature is you know is, is developing it's, it's not just focused on individual attribute and uh, in part it came from looking at uh, children who had grown up in situations of uh, severe neglect and abuse. And despite um, the, the, the terrible childhood conditions, some of these children had fared well over time. So uh, practitioners, researchers started looking to see what, what it was that uh, led to these children doing well despite their original circumstances. So I think part of the uh, history in the mental health care field is, is stuck at the origins of how resilience, the term resilience was used, even though the literature on it uh, in more recent times has moved towards understanding it more broadly. Thank you for that um, clarification. Um, Nizella, before I let you go, um, 
I'd like to ask you, if you were to have a conversation with the, what I call the everyday young person or parent or stakeholder, what would you tell them? Boy, that's a hard question. <laughs> Indeed, yes it is. <laughs> I, think, I think if I was to contextualize that question, I would, I would use a different approach with each group. Um, with the youth, I would say, what, what do you think we should be focusing on? And it's not just being a, a nice researcher here. There is evidence that shows when uh, we do health promotion type of research or practice with youth, it's most, more effective if we get the youth inputs right off the bat and we connect youth with each other. And in a way, that's why I'm drawn to participatory forms of research when we are doing research with young people, with youth and adolescents. Um, when, I'm work, uh, when I'm talking to parents, I would say um, reach out for help if your youth needs it. Uh, although there's stigma and uh, sometimes there's shame, uh, reach out for help. If I'm working with service providers um, and policymakers, I would say let go of your stereotypes around particular groups. Don't assume you know what a family needs uh, because of particular stereotypes of service providers, policymakers, or researchers we have. And ultimately, I think the best way uh, would be if there's an opportunity for all these different stakeholders, if you will, to come together and to talk to each other. And we can say, well, that's impossible. It's really utopic image. But there are practices that we as researchers can engage in to move towards that way of understanding. So for example, in most of our studies, um, in particular, studies on families who are children, raising children with developmental disabilities, uh, as a part of our studies, we have an advisory committee. And these advisory committees uh, are made up of um, service providers, but also parents, and depending on the focus, uh, young adults with disabilities. So it's not impossible uh, if we invest the time and resources and trust building, it is possible to bring the different groups together. So there's dialogue. Otherwise, it's going to continue to be uh, in silos. And often folks uh, who need the services will not be a part of a narrative of what services or help are the most relevant for them, whether it's for the family as a whole, or whether it's for youth and children of families who need mental health help. Important food for thought. If there, I, I see if there's a a, um, um, a prominent overarching message is that it's systems thinking, it's structural, but also centrally uh, locating the individual as expert, the person with lived experience, the community member as expert in the whole process, in this whole analysis. Yeah, absolutely. You, you summarized it so well, Simon. Thank you. 
Mozilla, thank you very much for speaking with me today and for appearing on uh, Crazy Making and offering us your wisdom. It's been my sincere pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Dr. Nazila Kanlu is an associate professor in the School of Nursing and Women's Health Research Chair in Mental Health at York University. Subscribe and listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Reach out to us by email at crazymaking at yorku.ca. That's crazymaking at yorku.ca. And follow us on Instagram at crazymakingpodcast. This podcast is written and hosted by me, Simon Adam, and edited by Among Antariksh Sagar. Thanks for listening.